This just happened right now. Just happened. Suggests to me very strongly, very powerfully, that she wasn't still breathing. Why would you leave her in the still as the original position that she fell in? But there was so much blood that it was shocking. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous, multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is our special edition, Worst Case Scenario. I'm Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. And joining me here in the studio is... Jim Clementi, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. Bobby Chacon, retired FBI agent. Maureen O'Connell, retired FBI agent. Well, as you guys can hear, this is a very special episode of Best Case, Worst Case. We have never been in studio, Jim, with two people at the same time, have we? Two additional people. We've had two being you and me, but we haven't had two guests. He's so picky, Jim. You're so picky. I'm so accurate and precise, yes. So Maureen, this is the first time you've ever been on Best Case, Worst Case. Am I right? No. So Maureen, it's good to have you back on Best Case, Worst Case. Thank you. What do you think? I remember everything? (laughs) (laughs) It's great to be back with you guys. It's nice to look at your uh, smiling mugs. Always a pleasure. Yes, Maureen, see, you can now serve as a witness because many of our listeners think that Jim hates me. And so you can see that we're actually sitting together and he's sort of nice to me. I hated you. (laughs) Why would I be sitting in the studio with you? He doesn't hate you. I just stand up to you, that's all. And that's (laughs) unusual. It is is unusual. Which brings me to the point of why we're here today. This is going to be a very unique worst case scenario because we are going to talk, Jim, about something that's going on in pop culture that everybody is talking right now. And that is the Netflix series, The Staircase. And I think when everything's said and done, that we're going to find that this is a best case and a worst case together. That's a good point. And I think also most people may be surprised to know, I don't think when it's all said and done, we're all four going to agree on Why what happened. Why we ever agree yeah, on anything, Francie? You're Francie and I'm Jim. <laughs> but so Jim, true. I usually do agree with you. Sometimes, yeah. But not always, thank God. And then there's Bobby. So- Let's get right into it. I I don't know how many of our listeners have watched this series, but I binged it a couple of weekends ago. It was the 4th of July weekend. I binged it and I was just fascinated. I was so drawn in from minute one. And I think it was because of the access that the filmmakers had to the defense team and initially the prosecution team. What did you find particularly interesting, Jim? Well, 
First of all, I think we should say that this series is actually two series put together. The original series had eight episodes, and it was about a death that was deemed a homicide and a prosecution and a conviction. And then everything changes. And there's a five-episode rejoinder that actually relooks at the entire case all over again. And so I think that's what's most interesting to me is that this is done after the fact, after there was a conviction, there's new evidence, there's things about the evidence that came in the first trial, there's all sorts of things like that. But of course, what's most interesting to me overall is the behavior. And there's so much in this series. Well, there is. And I think that's what I want our listeners to get from us today is what we all thought about the case, about the series itself, about the add-on, the rejoinder that Jim mentions, and the behavior, first of all. The first thing that really happens in the series is it opens with the film crew being at Peterson's house, at Michael Peterson's house, as we learn that there's been a death in his family. And so it really starts off with him taking the film crew through the evening of the death of his wife, Kathleen, where he was sitting, what he did, what he discovered, and then comes the 911 call. Right. But what's interesting about that, starting right off the top with behavior is he's basically telling a film crew about what happened. Why? Why isn't this man so devastated by the untimely death of his loving, lovable, wonderful wife, who he supposedly was madly in love with, who, by the way, was taking care of him and paying for all the bills. But why was he showing a film crew around the house as if it's some kind of spectacle? What did you think about that, Maureen? I also felt that he did it in a rather robotic fashion. There didn't seem to be any emotion. Mm. He talked about the wine they drank and that they stood here and we stood there. And then we took four steps down here. She sat there. The dogs came outside. It was very robotic to yeah. me. Did you think that meant it was practiced? I think he was being very cautious, which I don't think people really need to be when they're being truthful. Or rather than just being cautious, it could be a man that doesn't experience emotions. Mm. Bobby? Yeah, I agree with Francie. I think the first thing that I thought of when I, I had to stop myself because from a murder standpoint, this is not a very unusual case. We've seen cases like this. I think the biggest unusual thing was the access the crew had. I had to stop and go, because normally we're looking at archival footage and you're talking about something that happened in the past, but this show is actually brings you right into it. I mean, it's only days, I don't know how long after the crime took place, but it's very quick after the crime. So you get to see him conferring with his defense attorneys, like yeah. even before the very preliminary, you know, stages of the trial and the pre-motion, the pre-trial motions and stuff. So you're like this strategy strategizing. And I mean, right from almost day one, he's got this film crew. Now that's interesting from a viewer's standpoint, but then when you start thinking about it from a defendant standpoint, why you would want the aggrandizement of your wife's death. You know, he had this crew following him around the house. His kids were subjected to it. I mean, during this what should be the most traumatizing time of your life. He's a wide open book. He's talking about all this stuff. It, he almost seemed to be at some point enjoying the spotlight. And I got the feeling- At some point? <laughs> yeah. I got the feeling, this awkward feeling that I was almost eavesdropping or almost as if we're peeping Tom because of the access, the level of access that we got to this. Normally, like you said, it's a an expert commenting on a piece of evidence right. or this. But to see them strategize like that and then join that with everything else that was happening, it was just a holistic approach I had never seen before. Well, as a prosecutor, I was shocked at that level of access and they don't really explain it. They right. don't explain to us what we're doing, why we're there, how they got access, why he agreed to it. That would be fascinating to me. Like, who made 
that first approach? Who made that first yeah. call? Who said, hey, this is a good idea? Like, right. Where did that initial approach come from and say, you know, was it him reaching out? Because we know he's a novelist. So he's a little bit familiar with publicity and things like that. So, you know, I, I would wonder whether it's this French company who made this documentary, whether they approached him or whether he had people reach out and start to put out feelings. But on what planet? Do people who are involved in a mysterious death that's termed a homicide where this guy gets arrested for it, on what planet is it the right thing to do to go to a documentary series? He doesn't know what's going to happen, but yet he, he's the only one. His lawyers couldn't have approved it. Nobody else on the planet, the DA, nobody. I would think they all all seem to revel in their spotlight. Him, his lawyers, his kids. Yeah, but it had to be driven by... Michael Peters. Oh, sure. Yes, but let's talk about why. Why would he, what do you think, Jim? Given what you know, you watch the whole series, what about him does that tell you that he agreed to allow a film crew in with that kind of access to him, his house, and his kids at that, what should have been horrific time in his life? Two words, extreme narcissism. Mm -hmm. That's it. Extreme narcissism. Well, it's going to be really interesting to hear going forward, Jim, what you all think about how that narcissism plays in to evidence and the crime itself and what we hear from Peterson as we go forward. So let's talk about, to me, what was one of the most significant things, if not the most significant thing, and that sort of set my mind immediately to what I thought about the case, and that was the 911 call. Um, 911, So that's a 911 call. Yeah. Interesting. It's interesting, Jim. What struck me immediately was about the third thing out of his mouth was she's still breathing. That was unprompted. There was no question about it. I've listened to thousands of 911 calls. I have never heard anyone volunteer something like that. And how about this? What makes me think this was scripted on his part is she said, how many stairs did she fall down? He was like, huh? She said, how many stairs did she fall down? Uh, what? He wasn't prepared to answer questions. Mm -hmm. In other words, he didn't actually engage with this person. He wanted to convey information. And the fact that she asked him a question that he didn't anticipate really threw his game off. And so he's, "I, I don't know, 15, 20, I don't know. But the fact is that when you're in that, really in that moment, I think you would have had, he would have immediately said, it doesn't matter, or I I don't know. But instead, it's like, huh? What? But he never says, get someone here. Come save her. I need help. He said, send someone. someone. But but then after that, it's just, please, 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 what? What's he saying? I I didn't find it as troubling. I think people reacted um, differently. There might be only one thing that I found a little troubling is that normally on these calls, you do hear a lot of 
similarities with what happened in his call with other calls, but he, you never hear him address her, his wife. Mm-hmm. Usually you hear them, especially if they're still breathing, almost talking to them because mm-hmm. you're on the phone, but 90% of your attention is still in what you're doing in your life. Mm-hmm. And he never calls her by name. He never talks to her. He's never, even though she's unconscious, you're probably still trying to get her to wake he up. He does right, sound you know? like he's moving around, right? He does not sound like he's stationary with her. crying a little bit, but you never hear him address her, trying to wake up her. Um, And that bothers me. But the rest of it, to me, I don't know. I I think it, you know, like I have stairs at my house. I wouldn't know how many stairs. If they asked me that question, I might stumble on that. I might look at this. I would just, just, a whole staircase. Who cares how many stairs? Exactly. You would have said that immediately. You would have said, huh? Right. What? Right. He was clearly thinking. That was his, that's that's a thinking experience. Or he's going to count the stairs now. That's not what she was asking. It doesn't matter. She's trying to say, is it she fell down one step and bumped her head? Or did she fall down a whole flight? So the fact is that that was one troubling thing. But what's really most important, as you brought up, Francie, she's still breathing. The implication from that is that this just happened right now. Just happened. Like he didn't spend time after this accident and do something, stage it. Clean up, figure out get what's rid of happening, stuff. change clothes, whatever it is. Take right? a shower. Well, exactly. I, that's the, but that's the thing that meant so much to me about it, Maureen. Was she's still breathing when we later learned that there was dried blood at the scene? That that was what the EMTs noted when they got there. Suggests to me very strongly, very powerfully, that she wasn't still breathing, which calls into question every single thing about the call. What did no you think? Way. I actually tend to agree with Bobby on this. For the same reasons. I didn't have a whole lot of problems with the 911 call, with the exception of when he said she was still breathing, he never called her by her name. He never said, baby, I love you. Mm. I We don't know how we're going to react in a situation like that, but I'm fairly confident that I would be saying, baby, I'm here. Baby, I love mm. you. Honey, I'm here. I love you. You're not alone. Mm. Those type of things. And we don't hear any of that. Right. He's very overly dramatic. And you know, you hear him whimpering in the background, but again, he's not saying, oh, you know, I'm here with you. Right. You know, that's the thing. That's what you'd be trying to do. You'd be trying to wake her up. You would. And one of the things that I found very significant about this first episode in the series was that they play the 911 call. We hear Michael Peterson's words and they show us, the filmmakers show us the crime scene video as some officer or a crime scene tech approaches Kathleen's body and we see her body, you know, slumped at the bottom of the stairs. And they show us that multiple times throughout the series. And while it's a little bit blurry, it's very distressing and dramatic. And that's how they lead this series off. Yeah. Yeah, And what bothered me about that, about the the pictures, you can actually see her, one of her legs is still a little askew out in her arm. If my wife had fallen down and even if she was covered with blood, I would have cradled her up, moved her, gotten her and trying to help her, it you know, and yeah. so she wouldn't have been in the original position. So you'd fell. pull her off the Especially step. If she's still right. breathing. Why would you leave her there? Right. Her leg it's was lying off the Right. Yeah, I would have gotten her down. That's a really good point, I would point, have tried Bobby. to help her, especially if she's still breathing. I mean, you, you're trying to, you know, clear any blood away from her mouth. Why would you leave her in the still as the original position that she fell in? There's and, only one reason, Bobby. The reason you leave her in the position she fell in is because you want to try to prove she fell because she didn't really fall. But there was so much blood that it was shocking. It was shocking. I was half expecting them to discover that her torso had been sawed in half and placed back together. I could not believe 
how bloody that quote unquote fall was. There was a shocking amount of blood. Well, in the I mean, stairwell. going back to the whole, you know, this documentary thing, I mean, they left that blood in that hallway, staining that wall for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about months. Years. Now, a lot of times like there's a horrific murder or even accident in a person's house, they move out. They, they leave that because they can't even be in that area where their loved one perished, right? Right. Now, he not only stayed in that house. But he gave uh, tours. He gave tours. And he left the blood-stained walls there forever. Well, it was years, Bobby, because this happened in 2001. The trial was in 2003. And even in the middle of trial, they were bringing experts. They brought the jury. And they brought the jury. And And when the jury came in, the blood was still there. And the children were living in the house with their mother's blood spattered all over the walls. Francie and I talked about this earlier. It's bizarre. That, to me, was the most shocking thing I think I may have ever seen. Yeah, I think I agree with you, Maureen. And so then, so that's that's the dramatic episode one of the series that has me immediately suspicious, thinking that we've got a murderer on our hands who's trying to make an excuse. And then the next thing the filmmakers tell us is the the shocking revelation that the supposed perfect relationship that he had with his wife, there were actually other relationships that he was engaging in with men during his marriage. And this was a revelation in episode two. Yeah, but he made a very bright distinction between his relationship with his wife and sex with men. So he's saying it wasn't relationships with these guys. It was just sex. But then trying to say that she knew about it and she was fine with it. And then when they asked him closer questions about that, well, we never actually talked about it, but it was kind of implied. Well, and it was so deceitful because he he portrays it in the beginning. Tell me what you thought of this, Bobby. He portrays it in the beginning as we had this idyllic relationship. Our marriage was actually perfect. Right. And he describes that scene in episode one where they're having drinks and this is sort of a normal evening thing and there's so much romance in the relationship. And then his lawyers learn about this other evidence and they don't learn about it from him. Bobby, they learn about it from the evidence people who take the computers and leave some printed photographs of what looks to be gay sexual porn or gay porn. Right. But Bobby, what do we do in any homicide investigation or Marine when we're talking about a family where the husband is alive and the wife is dead? What's the first thing we look at? What is their relationship like, right? right? Sure. It goes, goes to motive, right? I mean, that's what we look at. They were a successful couple. They lived in a nice big house. They had what was called, seemed to be an idyllic family. What is the motive for him to murder her? You've got to find a motive. Well, well the, the first thing you have to do is clear the spouse. So even right. if you're going to, you know, you, it's concentric circles. So we're starting right here and we're going to move out from there. But your initial move, as you said, Jim, is clear the husband, look at that relationship, see who's paying the bills, look at their finances, look at their computers, all the stuff that it appears they did. Right. And when you say they were a successful couple, I think she was the successful part of that couple. She was apparently paying his bills. She was apparently, she probably had some serious life insurance and he was having sex with guys on the side. Right. And guys that he was deliberately hiding from his wife based on the emails and the traffic 
where he communicated with these guys. Right. But his defense was always, as you said, oh, you know, we didn't necessarily talk about it, but she knew and she was okay with it. That was never established. They were never able to establish. Well, no, and the children were clearly shocked. I mean, the children who were, who at the time this happened, most of them were, I think, at least 17 or 18 and older. So it's not like if he was engaging in this behavior that his wife accepted and that was so acceptable in the family that the children wouldn't have known about it. They, I think, might have known about it. But they were not aware. They were completely shocked. And you know what? I'm sorry. I just want to go back for a second because, of course, we have Maureen here and she did crime scene um, work for a very long time. And we talked a little bit about the bloody crime scene. And I would just love to get your perspective for our listeners. Tell us what happens when you get to a scene like that where you've got a body slumped, blood everywhere. What do you do to try to prove a case that might have to be made later? Well, you very, very carefully photograph uh, with the intent to diagram all of the blood spatter. And we look at the patterns. We The number one thing is obviously to photograph, to video, to see where the blood has flown, which directions it's gone in. The, the thing that just struck me, I just can't say enough how shocking that amount of blood was. Well, the one thing I can tell you about the um, blood was there was not a lot of cast off from what they showed me. I don't know if there was some information left out of the um, the documentary, which we all know oftentimes is the case, but I didn't see a lot of cast off. So there, there wasn't like some kind of an instrument, right. but I didn't. Yet the prosecution charged Michael Peterson with beating her over the head with a hollow brass blowpoke. I don't know if you've ever seen or used one of those blowpokes. I didn't know what a blowpoke was. It basically is a, a fireplace tool where it's hollow on the inside. You can blow into it to get the embers hot again and restart a fire. And, and, it, has a little, and it has a little hook on, and a point on the end. But it's hollow and it's brass. And if you hit somebody over the head with it in any way that might injure that person, it's going to bend and maybe break and hit them twice with it. It'll, it'll literally, it'll be useless as a weapon. It's after not like that. the poker, the fireplace poker. Right. That's the hard, it's not like an iron tool. Right. And what, tool. what I would have done if that I was those defense attorneys, I would have taken any number of those blow pokes that that sister gave to all the other family members. I would have hit him over a styrofoam head a couple times and shown what would have happened. And that would have been the end of the prosecution's case. But they didn't do that. They called Dr. Lee. And Dr. Lee's theory was that she actually fell and hit her head on the edge of the steps and that blood had accumulated in her mouth and that she then coughed. And that's why there's so much blood spray. The problem with that theory is I don't remember any medical examiner testimony saying that she was bleeding internally. No. That would have filled up her mouth. Exactly. So how did that happen? There and additionally, no they said that she slipped and her head hit again and she again slipped and, again, and her head and again, hit again. And again. But the blood didn't show that. The blood was coagulated evenly and it was dried on top. They only said that theory. They were trying to account for the number of lacerations yes. on her head. Right. But they that's inconsistent with some of the other physical evidence. Right. So they're trying to have it both ways. They're trying to explain the, la- the number of lacerations by right. these repeated slip and falls. But that's actually contradictory to the other physical but evidence. But with Dr. Lee, his theory was that because it's a staircase that turns sharply to the right as it goes up in the beginning, the flat part of the steps actually are very narrow on the right-hand side, Mm -hmm. and they're sort of arced out wider for a few of those steps. So if you were over on the right-hand side, you could actually go up three or four steps, and there's very little step there, Mm -hmm. and it's very easy to fall off there. So he theorized that she was drunk and she fell. And he had this whole complicated theory about how she fell and hit against the uh, the door jam and then fell and hit the steps. 
from there, which I think is possible. And then uh, she kind of got knocked out and she woke up and she tried to get up, but she had bled so much that she slipped. Her feet slipped in the blood because there was blood on the bottom of her feet and then hit her head again. And then while she was down, she had enough blood in her mouth. She coughed it out and that's why it sprayed all over the walls. I agree with Dr. Lee, except I'll add one more thing that somebody could have let her walk up those three or four steps and then grabbed her sweatshirt and yanked her down. And that would account for the massive amount of bleeding. That would account for the force. And then when she tried to get up again, yanked her down again, there would be no physical evidence that she was touched. And it would be very easy to have that happen. Well, I think the point that everyone's making is, like Maureen said, it was incredibly important right at the beginning of this investigation to document, document, document what had happened inside that stairwell. And I do think that the filmmakers purposefully left out a lot of images that we, the viewers, would have liked to see to evaluate that ourselves. We saw the staircase later many times, but we never really saw, and and I'm sure they did this on purpose, but we never really saw a lot of the images that must have been taken when the victim was laying there. And before I make a determination about whether Dr. Lee's theory holds water, I would want to see those. For me, I feel like Jim has got to be right because it's very unnatural. Wait, wait, wait. Did did guys, you're I did, witnesses. I did a double take that myself when I heard those did words. Did Francie say that I was right? I know, it's shocking. It never happens. But it seems like Jim is right in saying that she must have been pulled down. Because think about it, if you've overly imbibed alcohol and you're going upstairs and you're of a certain age, what are you doing? You're kind of leaning forward or you may be at least holding on, but you're kind of leaning forward. I just don't see how she could have received those injuries from repeated falls behind her. People just don't fall that way. All your weight is in the front. I just don't understand it. It makes no sense to me and never really did. I, too, agree with Jim, and here's why. Jim, it's a banner banner day. day. (laughs) Because if he, let's just say that Michael Peterson yanked her by the sweatshirt and threw her down on the stairs and grabbed her and threw her down again when she tried to get up. What would happen? His footprints would be all over. Mm -hmm. They'd be bloody footprints. He'd have to really do some work to make that look like a fall. So what does he do? Uh, Now I'm agreeing with Bobby. He leaves her exactly how she is so that he can mop things up, look Mm -hmm. at it again, make sure there aren't any voids because there would be voids if he's beating her and there's blood everywhere except where he was standing. And then he had to come back, clean up, change his clothes, take a shower, take his clothes to the woods and burn them, who knows, and come back. So, I mean, I think these things all together. My whole thing from the very beginning, when I saw this and we found out that he was having these liaisons with men, I thought she went up to the computer and she was drunk. She found out some of this stuff, saw some images, read some emails, came down and the fight happened. And it happened hard and it happened right on those stairs. And it was bloody. And and I think that that's a great theory, Maureen. And yeah. I think based on her behavior, though, that I don't know that she fought with him. I think that she told him to get out and she walked upstairs and he snuck up behind her and yanked her down. And why do I think that? Because you'll see in this series, we'll find out that years earlier, when Michael Peterson was living with his first wife in Germany, that he was in the military, living near a military base. His friend was killed in action. And he basically took over a fatherly role to this friend's two daughters and this friend's wife, and that he was actually visiting this house. And the next morning, that wife was discovered dead at the bottom of a staircase. And the witnesses said there was blood all over the place. And he was the last one to see her alive. He's the last one to see her alive. 
And the only two other people in the house are like a one and two year old baby. And her name was Elizabeth Ratliff. And Jim's right. Elizabeth Ratliff died under very suspicious circumstances. And what we learn, though, Jim, is when the defense learns about this, you can see the impact that apparently I think they got it either from the prosecutor or the press accounts. It's not clear on the episode. But when the defense learns about this, they know they've got to go to Germany. And so they immediately go to Germany to see how many people they can talk to and whether or not they can and look at the reports that were done by the medical examiner's office. And in that case, Jim, in spite of the witnesses that tell us later that it was a bloody stairwell scene, the medical examiner's report doesn't mention blood and says she died of natural causes, probably a stroke, and then fell down the stairs. Right. And so what do they end up doing? Exhuming her body. Yes. That's right. And Bobby, you know, you were an FBI diver for a long time. So you're very experienced with seeing bodies that have been in very uh, difficult and horrible locations. What does this sort of process look like to exhume a body that's been in the ground for 15 years? I've never, I don't, I've never exhumed a body, but my big question on that is I heard that natural cause, I heard brain aneurysm, it might've been, or a stroke. And I just don't know from, you know, from a medical examiner standpoint, I'd like to know is like, can you determine that after so many years? Or can they determine that, you know, when they did the original autopsy in Germany, it seems to me like if someone dies of a stroke, you should be, that's, that's a, a bleeding in the brain and you should be able to determine that. I mean, unless they just assumed it was a fall down the staircase and didn't do that extensive an autopsy in Germany, right. I don't know. It's my understanding that they found a similar number of lacerations on the back of Elizabeth's head as they did on Kathleen's head. And that was a major connection that was made then. And of course, that information to the jury seemed very, very suspicious. I mean, we all know we've worked in criminal investigations for a long time. There's usually no such thing as a coincidence. Well, as a prosecutor, I always argued in a case like this where there was prior some things that were similar to the case at hand. I always said, is this guy the unluckiest man on the face of the planet to have two people close to him die in exactly the same way? And and tried to ridicule that idea to the jury. And that's one of the things that was very interesting about this case was because this was many years ago and it's very controversial to bring in this kind of evidence. The same medical examiner who examined Kathleen uh, examined the exhumed body of Elizabeth Ratliff. She reached the conclusions that it was a homicide. She reached the conclusions, actually, that it was a homicidal assault that caused the death of Elizabeth Ratliff, which is not what the medical examiner in Germany found. Maureen, how do you reconcile one medical examiner finding that it was natural causes and the other finding it was a result of a homicidal assault? I think there were a number of things going on in Germany. For example, Elizabeth Ratliff's husband had died. She was a widow with two small children. She had been suffering from headaches and possibly migraines for a number of years. And so there there were certain assumptions made. Also, Michael Peterson was the person who was there. He was someone who was well-respected in the area, and he probably led the medical examiner down a particular path. Apparently, it's very common for the uh, doctor to show up at anyone's house when someone dies, even if it is of natural causes in Germany. But I found it very interesting that Michael Peterson's first wife, Patty, I think her name was, Patty, exactly, thought that he was absolutely innocent, that there was no way he would have anything to do with either one of these. Yeah, that he, well, but she further stated that there's absolutely no way he was having an affair with her. And that, to me, was just fantastical thinking. She said, oh, he was only gone for 20 minutes or so. And then a sentence later, she said, he came back within 45 minutes. I mean, it's just, it was such a, you know, it's the kind of thing where you look at 
How can you be so damn blind? Well, and additionally, one of the things we learned in the show around this time is we got to see pictures of Elizabeth Ratliff. We saw pictures of Patty at the time. And of course, we know what Kathleen Peterson looked like. They were all eerily similar in height, weight, hair type, hair color, hairstyles. That to me was really significant behaviorally, Jim. What did you think? Yeah, I thought it was. But I think what's most important here is how Michael Peterson responds in each one of these cases. And I think the fact that he was in this situation, like you said, he is either the unluckiest person in the world or he's somebody who killed these two women, knowing that that first death was ruled an accidental death or a natural death. Then his next wife dies in almost exactly the same manner. Even if he didn't kill Elizabeth Ratliff, he knew that when you have a dead person on the bottom of a staircase and there's a lot of blood, they're probably going to think she tripped and fell. And am I the only person that wanted to do DNA tests on all those children? Yeah. Well. I couldn't stop thinking about it. You were wondering whether Michael Peterson might be the father of the two girls that he adopted. Exactly. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think I would have thought that the affair happened after the guy died, but who knows? Like you said, Francie, all the women look the same. So the children are going to have a similar look. So whether or not they were Elizabeth Ratliff's or, or, or someone else's, they're going to look the same because the other women look the same too. They did. And I think that is a great way to pause this discussion. And I'm so excited that Bobby and Maureen are going to come back and discuss more about Netflix show The Staircase with us, Jim, on this worst case scenario. Yeah, it's going to be fun. So for now, we're signing off on Best Case, Worst Case. Thanks for listening. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clemente at Empire Studios, LA. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Tsumba. And hosted by Wondery. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Stories about child sexual abuse can make us feel powerless, but the good news is that there are organizations working to prevent abuse and keep kids safe. Darkness to Light and their Stewards of Children Prevention Training has trained more than 1.4 million adults to protect, recognize, and react responsibly to child sexual abuse. But there's more work to do. And with their 4 million by 2020 goal, Darkness to Light is setting their sights on training 4 million adults around the country to keep kids safe. By donating to Darkness to Light, you can help reach this goal that will make communities across the country safer places for kids. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org today to give. That's www.d2l.org. the number two, L, dot org. Ooh,